Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, guys, uh, happy Mother's Day for all of you moms in this room and uh, ladies here. We're just uh, grateful for you all. Um, this, uh, this may come as a surprise or a shock to you, but I'm fairly positive this is the first Mother's Day message I've ever preached. I think for the last seven, eight years, Adam had preached Mother's Day for me. Even when you guys didn't live here, did you visit on a... You visited on a month, Mother's Day, so... Adam, what does it feel like to be in a Mother's Day service? <laughs> I have done that because if you know me, I don't do well with holidays. I don't really do well with thematic messages. I've never really been able to preach a good Christmas or an Easter message in terms of uh, what they might classify as your traditional uh, church message. It's just never been in my wheelhouse. It's never been my gifting to correlate holidays and messages. And so this morning, I don't have a Mother's Day message for you, but I do have a message from the heart of God. And I believe it's still in, uh, it's still, it's still going to be uh, encouraging to all the moms here today. Is that okay? Amen. And so if I'm being honest, I would rather just give you what you get and not try to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And that's what we get here. So we're going to just kind of jump into the scriptures if that's okay. And so over the last number of weeks, we've been in, uh, we've been in the gospels studying Jesus's parables, particularly his parables in regards to the kingdom. And last week we made a shift out of Matthew 13 into Matthew 25, where Jesus gives three lessons, three stories, and they all correlate around this one central theme of the Lord's return, the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he gives three stories. The first story is uh, in regards to wise and foolish virgins uh, or bridesmaids, if you will. Um, and then this week, our, our story today is uh, going to be about those that received uh, these faithful servants. There's three servants that we're looking at that received uh, talents, and we're going to look at what that means and looks like, and then he culminates it all with not necessarily a parable, but a teaching on how he is going to come back and divide the sheep and the goats, and we're going to look into that next week, but all three of these uh, center heavily on this theme and this truth that Jesus is coming back, and so uh, last week... Um, I mentioned that it was a driving and core belief of the early church that modern Christianity has seemingly all but abandoned. It's this reality that God is coming back, that Jesus is returning for his bride. And I believe if we, if, I believe this, if we truly believed that Christ's return was imminent, the conduct of our lives and the work of our ministries would look vastly different than they do right now. I believe, and I'm saying that not just as a blanket statement, like, oh man, we all just need to get our act together. I believe examining my life, my life and the things that I spend my money on, the, the way that I spend and invest my time and cultivate relationships, it is not measured with the same urgency that I believe ought to be there if I believe that Jesus could return at any moment. 
And this is something that really motivated the early church. We see this in their writings. We see this throughout their history. We see this throughout their evangelistic efforts was that they had this core conviction that God was coming back and that he could return at any moment. And this isn't here to kind of like stimulate fear or like have us living in some weird kind of left behind scenario or something like that. I believe that the reason, the motivation for it is for us to understand the urgency of the hour, that there is a limited time span that we have to do the work that God's called us to do, that there is an end date in mind, and he is going to come back and judge the righteous and the wicked. There is going to be a separation that takes place. There is a finite amount of time, and I'm not here to tell you when that is. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be longer than that. It could happen while I'm preaching this message. I strongly believe that, but I believe understanding that and these teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 or 25 give us instruction on how we ought to live our lives with that reality at hand with that reality looming over us and it's something that I want us to be marked by I want us to be gripped by it because I want to live my life with such intentionality that if Jesus were to come back in this moment if he were to come back tonight I wouldn't have to offer excuses for why the work is left unfinished Does that make sense? Because I believe God has called me to something. I believe he has called you to something. I believe that he has plans and purposes for you and for me, and they may look vastly different. But I do not want to have to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, you know what, I could have done all this, but this is what I did do with what you gave me, and have him him disappointed with what I accomplished based on what he gave. Does that make sense? That's my greatest fear. My, my greatest fear is not to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, have him say, depart from me, I never knew you. That, that right now is not looming in, in my mind. I, I believe I have relationship with God. I believe you can have confidence in your right standing with God. What I am worried about is him saying, you know what, good job, Nate, but look at what you could have accomplished if you would have trusted me more. Look at what you could have accomplished if you would have listened to me more, if you would have made room and margin in your life for me to move. Look at what the potential was. And I I, I think it's important for us to understand that God wants to use us. And he has gifted and he has entrusted us uh, in a way for that to happen. And so I believe that we need to closely examine the way that we're living. Leonard Ravenhill would often say, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? That's a convicting statement. But I would, I would even stretch it this morning and, and try to frame it in this context as we're talking about these three different parables. Are we living in light of the Lord's return? Do our lives match up with what we may doctrinally believe, with what we see in the scriptures, with the warning that Jesus continually gives? Is the way that we're living matching up to that? I know for myself, I feel like I fall pretty short. This isn't like a, this isn't like, oh man, you know, Pastor Nate's being transparent and he's a real person to make us all feel better about the fact that we're not where we need to be. It's just me being honest and providing an honest assessment of my life and of my passions. And if anything, it's an encouragement to you um, uh, that it should be an encouragement for you 
to allow the Lord to examine your life, not in justification of, of remaining stagnant, but rather to allow the Lord to do something mighty and powerful and provoke us to his work and to his will. So I say this, I believe these parables deal plainly, very plainly. Uh, they speak very specifically about Jesus's return to the earth. And when he returns to the earth, he's going to find his servants and he's going to find those that aren't serving him. He's going to find those that are doing his will and those who are not doing his will. There's a clear separation that comes at this time of judgment at Christ's return, right? He's going to find five foolish and he's going to find five wise. There's this clear differentiation, whatever. You know what I'm trying to I'm Insert word that makes up here uh, to mean that there's going to be a distinctly different aspect to each one of these parties where there's the good fish and the bad fish like we talked about last week. We, talk, we look at the wise and we look at the foolish. We look here, there are the good and faithful servants and then there's the wicked and lazy servants. There is going to come a day of judgment where God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And as much as we would like to pretend that everything is going to work out in the end and that everybody is going to wind up saved in some reality, uh, I want to reject that notion that everyone winds up uh, saying yes to Jesus. Uh, I want to reject any thoughts of universalism here this morning because it is very clear from the teachings of Jesus that there is going to come a day where there is a separation that's going to take place and judgment is going to be pronounced by the only one worthy, by the only one able to make that call on right and wrong. And it all boils down to how we respond to Jesus, the son. Okay. But a lot of people don't believe that Jesus is coming back. A lot of people, even in the church, um, like I say, if we examine our lives, we at least don't live like we believe he's coming back. And so a kind of a core crux um, uh, scripture that we're using to hold and tie all these things together is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Reality is, I'm going to read most of the chapter here, and I'm going to continue to read this week after week, but... Uh, I think what Peter has to say is so profound. He says in beginning in verse three, he says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. This is so true and a perfect portrait and picture of our society right now. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy, to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is really, isn't really being slow about his promise as some would think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. 
Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, since God is really going to come back, since Jesus is going to return, it's a real reality. It says this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God. It's something that we as believers should be encouraging. We should be looking forward to it. We should be uh, excited about this reality where God brings justice to injustice, where wrong things are made right, where judgment comes in righteousness. We should be looking forward to this. Even hurrying it along on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. It's pretty graphic, intense language here, but the reality of it is Peter was writing to the first century church who was already struggling the church was already struggling with this fact that Jesus hadn't come back yet. So maybe he wasn't really serious. Maybe it was more metaphorical. Maybe it was just something that was meant to encourage us for a season. But Peter here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, encourages the early church and encourages us that we need to be realistic. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert and ready for the fact that Jesus is coming. And in light of that, he says that we should live holy and godly lives. He'll go on to tell us to do our best to live at peace with one another. I used this example last week. I talked about cleaning the house when we have company over. And if we know that we're going to have company over, we do the whole shebang where, you know, we clean the whole house and, you know, one of us has wound up like mopping the floor. And maybe if it's like somebody we really want to impress, like we're cleaning the baseboards that we do like once every four years or uh, we're like, okay, we got to clean the house. We got to get it ready because we have company coming over, right? But if you catch me off guard and you just show up at my house randomly, you're going to see, wow, they have kids and uh, their life is uh, messy. <laughs> and there are going to be toys thrown about. There's probably going to be food left out on the counter. There's going to be papers uh, and my work across the kitchen table. And it's not going to be uh, kept well. And I talked about, you know, last week when we have people coming over, I might hurriedly like throw things in the closet or lock things up in my bedroom, but it's really not clean, right? It might have the, the, the facade of being clean, but it's really not clean. And the whole idea is that Jesus is coming back and he wants us to have our house in order. He wants us to uh, not have to, and what he says, when it talks about this unexpected approach of the Lord, when he talks about the fact that he's going to come like a thief in the night, is that we will not have warning. We're not, we're not granted the luxury of knowing the day that we are going to die. We are not granted the luxury of knowing the day that he may return. We need to live our lives with such intentionality that things are in order now and not pretend like we have a span of time that we can procrastinate living right. This is the heart and the crux behind what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, yes, uh, I'm gracious. Yes, I'm merciful. But I want you to have your life in order. I want you to have your house clean, in this analogy, if you're tracking with me, here and now, and not try to do it as I'm approaching, because there isn't going to be time, because it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment, is what the writer of Hebrews would say. We don't have time to get things right. We don't have time to, to make up 
for what we didn't do uh, at the end of this age. I think there's plenty of people that are approaching their deathbeds living with regret that they didn't do something. And I don't want that to be true for us as his bride, as the church, that we live this life and maybe as we advance in years and we're, and we're getting ready to meet our maker, that we look back on our years and look back on our life and say, well, what did I do for the kingdom? I may have built a, a vast empire of wealth, if that's you, I'd like to talk to you, maybe go to lunch. Um, but <laughs> talk about what can you do for the king? I'm kidding. Maybe you had a successful career and built a family and maybe you had a lot of accolades. But the, 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 what's going to really matter is not how much money is in your bank account. What really is going to matter is not all the things that you accomplished. What's really going to matter is what did you do for the kingdom? And is God glorified with your life? Because I, I need you to understand God measures success far differently than we do. Far differently than this world does. And I want to be able to, at the end of my life, at the end of my days, whether he returns and we're called to glory, whether I pass naturally and I stand before God uh, on the day of judgment, regardless of how it happens, it's going to happen someday. And I don't want to have to provide excuses on why I didn't do for God what he asked me. So the parables in Matthew chapter 25, they're all centered around this theme of Jesus' Jesus's return. But the emphasis is slightly different in each one of them. So last week we looked at the wise and the foolish virgins, right? We looked at their story in Matthew chapter 25 where uh, five were wise, where they had gathered oil, where they had bought oil. They were ready for the bridegroom's coming. They had all fallen asleep. But we know that around midnight, the bridegroom shows up. They get this call and they all wake up and five of them have oil and five of them don't. So the five without oil ask the five with oil, hey, can you share some oil? Can you give some to us? But the five wise ones were like, no, we're not falling for that because we'll run out. Uh, you need to go get your own oil. And they go to get their oil. The bridegroom comes. They show back up. They, don't have, they, they were not prepared and they, they get rejected from the Lord. They, go, they knock on the, wedding, the door of the wedding feast, right? They, uh, they, they say, hey, let us in. But he says, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Get out of here. And there's this rejection that takes place because there was a lack of intimacy. And we talked about this, and I break it down. If you want to listen to the podcast, you can listen to last week. But primarily, I believe that first parable um, really highlighted the fact that these five foolish virgins were willing to go through the motions. They had their act together. They rose up. They trimmed their lamps. They went through the outward preparation and everything looked right except for they didn't have anything internally to burn. And I talked about how there was a need to not just look right. There was a need to not just go through the motions. It, there was a need to not just act and play the part, but there had to be something of substance. And I, I look at Jesus's response there, or the master, or the bridegroom's response in that parable, where he says, I don't know who you are. And we see this disassociation between relationship and whether they're wise or foolish. And so it's very much, I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's intentional that that comes first in this teaching of Jesus as he's teaching his disciples here. Uh, Jesus tells this, um, anyway, but he tells this uh, 
this parable, I believe, intentionally. Um, because I, I think inevitably the most important aspect of this life, if there is one measure or mark of success for mankind, it's whether or not you know and are known by God. And that happens through intimate relationship. And it's this idea that God prioritizes relationship with you above what you can do for him. We talked about this last week, and I, I reiterate this because I want to alleviate any confusion based upon the passage that we're going to study this morning, because at a cursory glance, it may appear to all be about performance, all be about our work for the Lord, but there is so much more to it than that. And I think, uh, I think we have to prioritize here the necessity for us to have intimate relationship with the Lord long before we ever do anything for him. But just because we have relationship with the Lord does not preclude us or excuse us from working for him or doing things for his kingdom. In fact, it actually serves as enablement and it is expected of you. Salvation is always and will always be by God's gracious gift alone. There's nothing you can do to earn it but there is fruit. There are works that will be evident as a result of God's saving grace in your life. A lot of us don't want to accept and embrace that fact because we may look at our lives and we see maybe not good fruit. <laughs> but James, right? People, this conversation has been going on for uh, millennia quite uh, quite accurately, whether or not if it's faith or works. You know, we have some religions uh, that base your salvation on how many good deeds you do. And we know that Jesus is very much about, is your faith in Jesus? That is what saves us. But I love the way that James talks about this. He says in James 2, 26, he says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And if there's one way for me to communicate this this morning, I would say work our works or good deeds or the fruit of, of salvation exists as a result of relationship, but it is not the cause of it. Does that make sense? Your works exist as a result of relationship with God, but it's not what causes it. It's not what instigates it. And so last week when we looked at this message of the wise and the foolish virgins and we really talked about how it was about living ready, ready for the Lord's return. This week, I think we begin to understand what readiness actually looks like. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read in 14. I'm reading out of the NIV if it helps anybody. But beginning in verse 14, it says again, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven in the, in the first part of Matthew 25. But he goes on here in 14. He says, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. And so your translation might here refer to these as talents. Talents are a measurement of wealth. And so... We see five bags of gold, two bags of gold, and one bag of gold, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. 
So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came, master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered, scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot to this parable to break down. You're more than likely familiar with it. If, it's, if you're not, uh, this is your first time encountering this. I'm excited and honored to be able to share it with you today. But for us, especially on this side of the cross, this parable could not be more clear. We see very plainly there's a master that leaves and comes back. And Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to leave and he's going to come back. Um, and I believe this directly relates um, to what we as the church, as followers, as servants of Jesus ought to be doing in the time that he is away. <clears throat> Jesus is the master that goes away and entrusts his servants with the matters of his house. The parable of the talents here, or these bags of gold, um, the meaning is that Jesus is coming back. It might seem like he's delayed, that he's not coming back, but he is. And one day the king will return and we will be accountable for how we used what God has given us. That is the very plain meaning of this message. It's a picture of the church, where we are right now in church history, where Christ is not present, where he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but his return is real. It is something that is going to happen. And for now, he has entrusted us, his church, with his work. And one day we will have to stand before him and give an account and that day will be an interesting one in whether or not we present him with something of value, with something, will we have something to show for ourselves? And so when we talk about talents here, when we talk about these bags of gold or this money here, I, I need you to understand we're talking about resources. Now, now a talent in this particular uh, passage of scripture, um, it was a measurement of money or 6,000 denarii to be uh, very specific, and most scholars would estimate that to be a, about 20 years worth of labor. 
Um, so if you were going to be the common worker, a day's wage, it would be 20 years of a day's wage. <laughs> and so they, they estimate this. And I, I say estimate because I found wildly different measurements of what a, what a talent was actually worth. But a middle of the, word, a middle of the road very frequently used estimation of what a talent would be worth was roughly around a million dollars. And so I need you to understand here, even the one that buried, even the one that only received one, still received something highly substantial. This is important for us as we kind of dig into this story, as we dig into this parable, because it's one about stewardship. Um, and so while the, while the symbol here in this story, right, we understand Jesus' parables are utilizing symbolism here because at the end of the day, God doesn't really care about money. He doesn't need money. He's not a master looking for more money. And this message isn't primarily about him gaining resources. He's not looking at gaining more resources, is he not? He's looking for faithfulness in his servants. This is what this message is all about. This is what this teaching is all about. It's not about how much of a return God can get on his investment here. Does that make sense? He doesn't need more money. That isn't what this is about, and it's not about money. But as we're reading this, I think it's helpful if we're looking at this idea of talents, as we're looking at this idea of bags of gold. The symbol used here is monetary, and I believe it definitely applies to that, but it extends to every good gift that God has given us in regards to our money, our abilities, our time, our opportunities, our resources. Um, it's about stewardship. In fact, one of, our, one of our kind of core principles here when we invite people to be partners of this church or join as members of this church, uh, one of the aspects that we talk about is stewardship. And everybody automatically, their minds jump to money. But I know people that are really good stewards of their money, but very bad stewards of their time. Right? How many people do we know that have tons of money, but their families are a wreck? <laughs> And we want to have a well-balanced approach to stewardship where we look at what God has given us, what God has entrusted us, and making sure that we're doing the very absolute best that we could possibly do with what God has entrusted us. That's a biblical model of stewardship. And when we understand that everything that I have is not actually my own, but it's come to me as a good gift from a good and gracious master, I believe that the way that we utilize our time, the way that we utilize our resources looks vastly different than the person that thinks that they worked for it and they earned it all themselves. Does that make sense? It's easier for me to give when I understand that it is not mine in the first place, but I've only been entrusted with it from a gracious master. Something that some of us need to grant a revelation of. What you have is not yours. It has been borrowed to you. <laughs> it has been given as a loan. <laughs> it has been entrusted to you for you to do something with it. Does that make sense? Not to sit on it, not to hoard it, not to accumulate more for yourself. But when we have the mindset of working for our master, things look far different in practical everyday life. So what can we learn from this parable? I believe one of the very first things that we need to do is have a healthy view of who God is and what kind of master he is. 
because I believe that there were two here that had a pretty good understanding of a good and gracious master that was entrusting them with resources, that was entrusting them with responsibility, that was gracious and generous. And we had one here that viewed the master as a harsh rule master, viewed him as a harsh man and had a fear that was inappropriate. And I, I'm going to get to that because I believe that there comes a healthy respect, a healthy fear of the Lord that I preach about quite frequently that we need to have, that I believe the first two had, but this one had a misguided view and understanding of who his master actually was. And so our view of God is going to dictate how we live. And so I, I wrote this, that the first two servants here, they clearly viewed their master differently than the third. And their view of their master actually helped define their actions. They took risk. And they were rewarded. The last one attempted to play it safe because he had a misguided view of who his master was and what his master would have wanted. And I believe that that comes from a place where there was no relationship with the master. A.W. Tozer says this from his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to continue to read this quote because it goes on. He says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he had, uh, what, what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward the mental image of God. This is not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech." My speech is not that eloquent. I struggle to read things. <laughs> but the reality here, friends, is that what we think about God is of utmost importance because what we think about God will define the way that we live. If we view, if we view him as gracious and generous, but also the fact that he is severe, we have a healthy view of God and we'll do things according to his will for his glory. If we view him as just kind of some kind of cosmic teddy bear bunny, uh, I was going to say bunny or buddy, but I said Bundy. Anyway, I'm not going down that road. Uh, <laughs> but if we view him as just kind of a friend that says, hey, anything goes, everything goes, and everything's forgiven, and I'm just going to be your best friend and do whatever you want, it's okay, our lives are going to look vastly different. If we view him simply just as the angry, mean old guy in the sky that's going to come back with harsh judgment and severity and there's no love and there's no compassion and we don't see the generous aspect of God, we're going to uh, obviously either live in fear and, uh, and, and we'll live devoid of relationship from a God like that. And it, neither, neither of those last two are appropriate views for us to have of God. We need to see him as he actually is, as a gracious, compassionate, kind uh, master 
that equips and gives generously, but he also has expectation. He's a good father that does require something of you. I think it's interesting when we think of, uh, I, I hear it frequently, it's, it's not about who you do, it's, or it's not about what you do, it's about who your faith is placed in, right? We understand that. It's, our works don't equate to salvation, but they certainly provide some evidence of it. I think it's interesting in the book of Revelation, the, the one thing that is consistently brought forth before the church in the seven letters that Jesus gives to the different churches, he says, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. He doesn't say, I know the motivations of your heart. Or he doesn't say, I know what you feel. I know what you believe. He says, no, I know your works because your works are an evidence of what it is you actually confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Anyway, so I look at this and I see these wise, these good and faithful servants in comparison to the wicked and lazy one. I take notice here between all three, there's a difference between them, right? The talents, the bags of gold, the resources aren't distributed evenly, are they? And so some of us might immediately balk at that and say that that's unfair, right? Matthew 25, 15, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then immediately he went on a journey. I think it's important that we notice that he gives it according to their ability. I want you to understand God doesn't set anyone up for failure. God did this in such a way, the master did this in such a way where he recognized the potential in each one of them and gave according to their ability. And the expectation for when he returned wasn't based upon some kind of arbitrary number that he had already decided or something like that. It was based upon the potential and the ability that presented itself for them. God does not set anyone up for failure. You need to hear this this morning. Regardless of if you were been granted one talent, five or ten, or maybe some other different number or symbol or whatever you want to see here, at the end of the day, I believe God gives according to the potential inside of you. And it looks different from person to person to person to person. But God does not set anyone up for failure. God did this in such a way that there would alleviate the excuses that are eventually presented to him. And so um, he doesn't set anyone up for failure. I believe he sets everyone up for success. And everyone in this story receives something substantial and significant. Would anybody here be like, hey, if I, let's just say I'm independently wealthy. All of a sudden I just start handing out millions of dollars. I give Darwin a million dollars, but I'm going to come up here, man. I'm going to give Cody five million dollars. And then I'm going to come over here, I'm going to give David $10 million. Darwin, are you going to be mad? Or are you going to be happy that you got a million dollars when you walk out of church? <laughs> Anybody want to try this morning? Got to give the opportunity. Right? You could have the mentality that, well, I didn't get as much as that guy. Or I didn't get as much as that guy. But in reality, man, you got a million dollars. That should be life-changing. That should be something gracious. There we go, yeah. <laughs> Somebody give me a chance to just try it. Come on. 
That's a lot of Jeeps, yes. <laughs> I liked what, I liked what the, the commentator Clark said about this. He said, the talent which each man has suits his own state best. And it's, it is only pride and insanity which lead him to desire and envy the graces and talents of others. Five talents would be too much for some men, and one talent would be too little. But I, I need you to understand this, regardless of what God gives us, the amount of resources or abilities, because let's be honest, there are some people that are, so it's interesting, this word talent, our word for talent actually comes from the Greek word here, to, I can't even pronounce it, so I'm not even going to pre- pretend to, but it actually stems from this story is where we get our current idea of talent. You know, if you have talent, if you can play the guitar and sing, you have talent if you can throw a football really far, you have talent if you can do these different things, right? These these abilities that people might have. It actually correlates right back, and that's where we get this language in our culture from, is from this parable, from this story. But there are some people that are far more talented than you. That's just a harsh reality of life that you should embrace, and the sooner you embrace it, the easier it's going to be for you. We are not all created equal in terms of our talents and our abilities. That doesn't, that doesn't actually sit well with a lot of people. People want to maybe say, well, you're talented in this area, but you make up for it in this area. No, some people are just stupid talented. Have you met the Searles? Like, <laughs> they're good looking, they can play really, they, they play music really well, they're good at sports. Those guys are awesome. I didn't get any of that when God was pouring it out, you know, like, anyway, that's, that's bad. Ryan, I hope you listen to this someday. Um, I think very highly of you. Uh, but <laughs> the reality of it is, is that we're not all created with equal abilities and equal talents and equal resources. And there's diversity in God's kingdom, and that's okay. I think it's something that the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we come to reality with that, it's helpful for us. But just because we're not equal in terms of abilities and resources, uh, I do believe that we are all equal in God's sight in terms of personal value. Because this is something unique about God. He doesn't measure your value based upon what you have or what you can do. He measures your value based upon whether or not you're faithful. And at the end, right, there was not a difference. The one that only had four talents at the end and the one that had 10 talents at the end, he didn't say to the one with 10 talents, oh man, you're so much better than the guy with four talents. They both received the same response where, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that should be the goal, whether you have one talent, whether you have five talents, whether you have two talents, 10 talents, whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum, the goal has to be, I want to be, I want to find myself before the Lord as a faithful servant, good and well done. And I really believe that it has very little to do with what kind of return they received on their investment. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I believe this, that God doesn't equate uh, talents to value like we do. And I believe that this parable has little to do with resources, but everything to do with personal character. You may not be a five-talent guy, meaning you might not have been born into a life of luxury, uh, maybe into a Christian home with a good upbringing, with everything kind of perfect around you, with an abundance of wealth and resources. 
You may have been born into a different set of circumstances. You may have had a different trajectory of life, but will you let that keep you from serving your master well? Because it's not about what you have or don't have in this situation. It's about your character on whether or not you're going to prove to be good and faithful or wicked and lazy. And so while the distribution of talents might seem unfair, it's really not. Because God does not judge based on what you have, rather what you do with it. So don't fall into the comparison trap. I'll tell a funny story. I had a youth student with me. I mentioned Ryan Searle. If you don't know him, he's a cool dude. He leads worship over at Restoration. We all lived together at one point in time, and I lived with this guy, Ryan and Rory, and they're just, they're studs. They're cool dudes. They're successful if you want to be, but they also love Jesus passionately, and they're just kind of awesome all around. They're always traveling the world and doing cool stuff and raising families, and they're awesome. I really love them to death, but when uh, I was uh, younger, uh, I remember thinking, man, I just don't have the connections or the resources. I'm not as athletic. I, I, I can't play music like them or anything like that. And I was just thinking these things in my head, but I had a student with me in the car. And we're driving down the road, and they had just gone to Europe or something like that. And I had mentioned, man, I would love to do that someday. I'd love to just backpack Europe. Uh, that sounds awesome. They've done so much, and they're, they're my age. They're younger than me. Uh, and they're, they're doing so much for the kingdom. And this kid, and so, so well-meaning, just said, well, yeah, they, they're, they're doing well, they're doing good, but, I mean, your life sucks, Nate. <laughs> it's just what he said. And I think he was trying to mean, like, man, you've, you've had a hard go at it. And he was trying to, like, encourage me that you've come a long way, you've done a lot for yourself. But he just said, no, your life just sucks. <laughs> I think it'd be easy for me to fall into the comparison trap there. But I want to encourage you, don't. Because just because you're not blessed in the same way that someone else is does not mean you're not blessed. And I mean this in every kind of way to read this, that it's easy to look at the guy across the street. It's, look, it's easy to look at the guy on TV or somewhere else or a different family and be like, man, if only I had what they had, then I could do something for the Lord. We can never live that way because somebody's always going to have more. Somebody's going to always have more time. They're always going to be better prepared. They're going to seemingly have more than you do. But God's not judging you based upon what somebody else has and you don't, he's going to judge you and you're going to have to give an account for what you have, not what someone else has. And so my encouragement to you this morning is look at what you have. Look at what you've been blessed with. The crazy thing is, regardless of if you have a bunch of money in the bank, regardless of if you have a bunch of time, uh, we all are given the same amount of hours in a day. We're all given... The same, um, uh, the same capacity. Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go too far down that road or I'm going to miss the rest of my notes. But just don't fall into the comparison trap. I think of this third servant here. Because maybe he felt like he couldn't accomplish as much as the other servants. I don't know if maybe that led him into a place where he just thought it'd be better for him to bury it or uh, keep it safe. But what I do recognize in him is he, he recognizes some sense of omnipotence. 
He recognizes some sense of sovereignty about his master when he calls him a harsh man, reaping where he has not sown, uh, gathering where he's not scattered seed. We see this, we see this mentality here that uh, maybe he just doesn't need this servant's help. And I think this is honestly one where a lot of us as Christians fall into this category here is we look at an all-powerful master. We look at a master that has everything where resources really aren't that big of a deal to him. He can, he can speak things into creation that what we have may not be enough value to actually do something with, that he doesn't need you. And I want to be clear this morning. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He doesn't need us to complete his will and see things transpire, but he has chosen it in such a way that he has demonstrated his love to humanity. And the primary way that he is doing that in this hour is entrusting his servants with himself. That we might be good representations of our master to the world around us. And he wants to use you. And it might be easy for us to sit back and, and feel like, you know what, what I have to offer the Lord is not, is not enough. My skill set, my talents, my resources, my time. You know what? I'm content with just going to church and, you know what, giving Jesus the thumbs up. But he's not really worth it. Maybe he doesn't need me to do it. And we sit back and we kind of live casually. I believe it's a dangerous way to think. So what I see here in this lazy servant, I believe he demonstrated a lack of concern about his master's business. And in doing so, it demonstrates a lack of concern about the master himself. You know what I honestly believe? Had this servant worked diligently, if he would have put in the time and the effort and he still came up short and he lost some of the master's money, he came back before his master when he returned and said, you know what, I, I did my best, I tried my hardest, I worked hard, but I, I made some bad deals. I bought a bad Jeep. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it didn't work out the way that I had tried, but I, I did my best. Understanding the master's gracious response, I, I don't think it would have looked as, get out of here. You lost my money because it was never about the money, right? It was never about the resources. It was about the character of those on what they were willing to do. Instead, this guy was just wicked and lazy. I don't think those are two terms that we kind of combine very often in our culture, but they ought to be. I think the church is filled with them. Right, there's that, you've probably heard the statistic that gets thrown around that uh, it's like 90% of the church work is done by 10% of the people. <laughs> I'm grateful that I don't feel that way in our congregation, but the, the reality of it is, is, man, I say that, the reality of it is a lot, don't I? 
could say that quite a, I could say that quite a lot. I've just noticed it. But the, but the reality is, <laughs> this generation, right now, meaning all of us here, not just millennials or Gen Z or something like that. I'm talking about at this moment in history, the church is better resourced than ever before. We have more gospel resources. We have more ability. We have more money. I don't know if that's true. There's probably a time in history where the church had a lot more money, but We have a tremendous amount of resources before us. And I believe that we will have to one day give an account before God Almighty about what we did with what he entrusted with us. And that's a sobering thing for me to begin to think about. I think about how easily accessible the Bible is for so many of us, yet how little we prioritize it. Close my notes early. So I wasn't sure if I was going to read this, but I read this in my commentary. I was preparing for this morning, and I want to just read this to you. You see, some think that Jesus' return. Wow. I struggle when I just try to read sometimes. <laughs> this is what David Guzik says. He says that, think that readiness for Jesus' return is a very spiritual and abstract thing. It really isn't. It's a matter of being about our business for the Lord. In light of this parable, we must ask ourselves, what have we done with our knowledge? What have we done with our time, with our money, with our abilities? The sins of omission, what we don't do, may ultimately be more dangerous than the sins of commission, those that we do do. Jesus. we're going to be good stewards of what God's entrusted us with. One of which being our time. I think there needs to be a distinction made between common and holy things. A verse that has kind of gripped me for years and years and years now and Adam even shared it uh, I think this last Tuesday when we were talking about Alpha and I, I've, I've prayed it pretty continually over the years. Actually comes from Leviticus chapter 10 and it's this charge to the priesthood in Leviticus 10:10 10, 10, that you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. And I think for us if we're going to be good stewards of what God's given us, there has to be a distinction between the holy and the common in our lives. Not just the good and the bad, 
But there are going to be things that are somewhat good that need to be sacrificed to make way for the holy. There are going to be things that are common, not necessarily evil, that we might have to say no to if we're going to say yes to the things that God's invited us into. That's not always easy, but can I tell you it's always worth it. I think I shared this last week. It might have been two weeks ago. But my friend Neil Umali always tells me that if we knew the exchange rate of heaven, we wish we would have given it all. And I know at some point, every person, when we stand before the Lord, we're going to wish that we would have given more. I'm not talking about money now. I'm not getting ready to pass an offering plate or something like that. But I want us to have an appropriate recognition of who the Lord is, that he's actually worthy of our time, that he's worthy of our resources, that he's worthy of our abilities, because we can waste our lives spending them and spending ourselves for an inferior cause that isn't the kingdom. Many people sacrifice themselves at the altar of the almighty dollar. We see families, uh, even right, we understand having a healthy family is a good thing, but I, I have seen people abandon their faithfulness and their calling from the Lord because family is more important. Obviously, I've seen it the other way too, and that's not okay, but there are inferior things that we can give ourselves to. And the reality is that each and every one of us will give ourselves to something. My hope today is that we would be good stewards of the good gifts that God has given us. And we wouldn't find ourselves lazy, sitting idly by while there's work to be done. As long as there are people in this community that have not encountered the love of Jesus, we should be getting to work. There are things to do. But it only happens from a sustained place of relationship with the Lord. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.